Hi everyone, and welcome back to China in the Americas podcast. Today we are going to do a deep dive on the legal dynamics of sovereign debt markets. We hear quite a lot about sovereign debt as it relates to China in the region, but in foreign policy circles, you seldom hear any mention of the other major players in sovereign debt in Latin America and the Caribbean. But in this episode, we are going to pay special attention to IMF's structural adjustment programs, private creditor committee negotiations, and the possible differences between Western and Chinese legal interpretation of bilateral loans. To discuss all of this, we are joined by Thomas Loyer. Thomas formerly served as Assistant General Counsel at the International Monetary Fund. Where he was responsible for the IMF's legal relations in finance and economic surveillance with each of its member countries. Now in private practice, Thomas has advised on several recent high-profile sovereign debt restructurings in Argentina, Belize, Suriname, just to name a few. I couldn't possibly think of a better guest to discuss these legal dynamics in sovereign debt. Hi, Thomas, and thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Sure, happy to be here. I want to start off talking about the IMF and how the IMF does loans in, in our case, Latin America and the Caribbean, and. We often talk about IMF loans in this superficial way. Oh, the IMF gives money to the Caribbean countries or the Latin American countries, but beyond that, we don't know how it works. So, essentially, let's start from the beginning. How does the loan program work? Does the government have to call upon the IMF in a particular way, or the IMF kind of has a monitoring program and say, "Oh, this country might want some loans coming up"? How's the initiation process work? Sure, um, that, that, that's a, a great question.、Um, I'm, I'm going to step back a little bit、mm-hmm. and then go in, into the financing. So people often attribute the, to the IMF a main role of financing, but actually its principal role is in so-called economic surveillance. It monitors countries'、um, economic performance relative to their ob- obligations、um, for domestic and external stability. That's the core function, and, and every IMF. Member country over 190 are all subject to that process,、um, and so once you have that as the baseline, the IMF then has some an, an additional tool which is financing in circumstances where a country is in financial distress.、Um, the technical term is balance of payments、um, need. They, they have problems with their external payments,、um, which could include debt payments, and so it's in those circumstances principally. That the IMF then can step in and provide financing, but to your point, it can only the IMF can only provide financing if the member country requests it. So that that is a a legal predicate for any IMF involvement in financing. And then there are two types of individual financing that IMF provides to、um, to, to countries.、Um, one is so-called outright. Um, purchases outright disbursements,、um, so emergency financing、um, is an example of that. You would have seen during the the height of COVID that the IMF was providing、um, an, an, a number of、um, in, individual loans to countries、um, to、uh, assist them in those emergency circumstances.、Um, and then separately, there's financing that IMF provides through so-called programs, through、uh, these financing arrangements that provide for tranches. 
um, over a period of time, uh, a period of years uh, in some circumstances, and each tranche is conditioned upon um, economic performance. So that, that's the sort of the, the, the standard IMF financing that people are most aware of, where you have conditionality built into a multi-year program that is uh, providing for economic reform and for financing associated with that economic reform. What decisions go into the IMF making certain conditionalities required for the loans? Well, perfect question. So the IMF's conditions are set out in two places. There's some conditions in the Articles of Agreement, which is essentially the international legal treaty that establishes the IMF and sets out the obligations and rights of IMF member countries and the institution. So there are some conditions that are set out in, in the Articles. And then they, there are conditions set out in IMF policy. So, for example, the IMF has rules uh, associated as to whether it can lend into arrears to other creditors. Um, and so that, that's a condition set out in IMF policy, and that, that, that can, those conditions need also to be met. Um, and, and so what, what, what you see in these lending, multi-year lending programs are specific um, performance criteria, is the technical term, or benchmarks is, is another type of conditionality that are set out in the program documents that tell, you, tell the country that if it meets these conditions, then this financing becomes available. Um, but the legal source, as I said, is in IMF articles and in IMF policy. I'm wondering how much knowledge countries have about the IMF's legal grounding when they do decide to join the IMF. Yeah, well, there, there's a, a variety, a broad spectrum of um, knowledge within countries. So the conditions in the articles are not that numerous, um, and they were. They, I, I don't recall them being changed since the IMF was um, constituted in, in 1945. There have been other changes to the IMF articles, but not essentially in terms of, of the uh, treaty conditions on financing. But the board policy conditions can change all the time. Uh, most of those policies can be changed through a decision by the IMF executive board, um, which is a 24-person um, board that has representation across the whole membership. And those decisions by the IMF board can be taken generally by a majority of the votes cast. Um, each country has a, a weighted vote. The United States has about 16 per percent, for example. Um, and so that weighted majority of, of the board establishes the policies that um, will, will inform IMF loan financing. And then the individual arrangements are determined again by a majority of the votes cast in, in the board. And so the, the specific conditions in a particular financing program, again, is established by the board. So you've got those three different levels um, with different opportunities for countries to have input. Clearly, no new member country um, can change the articles. Uh, it has a very high threshold for, for, for changes. And for many of the borrowing countries, frankly, they have very little influence in the, in the board in terms of voting power. And so they, they feel that they are sort of recipients of the terms and rather than being influencers of the terms. And so, you know, that, that is a problem. Um, it, it's, it's an institutional struggle that the IMF has is, is that the larger countries who tend to be the creditor countries are the ones who are setting the 
policy and the ones who are agreeing, um, who need to agree to the individual financing for the country, for the debtor countries to receive financing. And the debtor countries have relatively little input um, into that framework. I, I do want to drill down into the mechanics of these steps. So if, for example, Jamaica wants to borrow money from the IMF, structurally speaking, what happens between that intention to actually getting the money from the IMF? Okay, so, you know, I, I, I said that um, financing is subject to the request from the member country. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's a, a formal requirement. In practice, there is a shadow play where the IMF is is recognizing um, and having discussions with, with with the country, saying, "Look, you know, we, we can see you um, getting into trouble." And, and the reason why I emphasize at the beginning this surveillance function, the IMF has a constant daily in, engagement, if you like, with member countries, and there are obligations for the country to provide the IMF with data. The IMF has obligations going back the other way, so it's 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 very well informed as to how the country is is doing on on a ongoing basis. And so the IMF c- can use that information to say, look, you know, in Jamaica, I can see that you know there, there there's a potential trouble um, ahead, and and they will first try and perhaps use their surveillance tools to avert that trouble. Um, but if, if they feel that um, exceptional financing is needed, then there will be a a dance, if you like, where the member country will be engaged with the IMF, talking about potential for a request for financing, and then they formally make a request. When the country makes a request, then there's a period of negotiation associated with what is an appropriate adjustment program, an appropriate economic reform program that will contribute to the uh, addressing of the economic imbalances, um, in addition to the financing that the IMF will provide, and in addition to the financing that could be catalyzed by IMF financing. This is a really important point, is that the, the, the IMF's financing of, of, on its own balance sheet tends to be just a proportion of the total amount of external financing that a country will get associated with an IMF program. There'll be other multilaterals that will come in the IADB, the CDB, there'll be other bilateral countries that will come in. And sometimes there are private creditors who would also provide financing either through new money or sometimes in a debt restructuring scenario through relief. Um, so that, that there's a financing package that is, is worked on in addition to the economic reform package. And that negotiation can take several months. Sometimes it can take a year or more. So, so essentially the, the IMF agreeing to offer the package adds as a credibility anchor for other players to offer as well loans. Yes, absolutely. We call this the so-called catalytic effect. Um, you know, there, there's, there are disputes as to how strong that catalytic effect is these days. Um, you know, there are question marks around how credible um, are IMF reform programs. And, and there's been a pullback, as you know, from many of the other governments that used to provide financing in these circumstances are more wary of that process. But still, in principle, the idea is that the IMF is not going to provide all the financing gap um, in, in, the, in the program. It will provide a portion of that financing gap and catalyze other financial resources. Do you think that uh, oftentimes the requirements from the IMF to get the loans are a bit too harsh? especially for small countries. No, that's something we heard a lot growing up in the Caribbean, for example. 
Yeah, it, it's it's hard to judge what you mean by harsh. Um, you know, there, there there are there's a spectrum of the type of reforms a country needs to engage in, depending upon its situation. Um, there's some countries that wait until you know they really are in a deep crisis, and and then you know there there's no other way out but to have very deep economic reforms. Um, and there are some countries where they have access to additional sources of financing, and so those additional sources of financing will cushion the economic adjustment that they have to make in addition to the IMS financing. So you can't make a generalized statement, uh, in, in, in my view. Um, having said that, um, there, there, there has been a, a view over time that some of the fiscal adjustment that the IMF um, has been calling for me in, in, in some of his programs was too, too aggressive. Um, even though I said to you that the IMS in its articles is, is set up to provide balance of payments financing, there's been a, a drift, um, in that many of the actual programs that it's supporting, um, have significant fiscal components. Sometimes it's the fiscal component, which is really the, the only component that the IMF is, is supporting an adjustment in. And as, as any economist will tell you, if, if you, contract um, fiscally too much, that in itself can be counterproductive in that it can reduce growth in the economy. And if you reduce growth in the economy, then that gives less resources um, to re repay your creditors, etc. So, you know, there, there needs to be a, a, a balance as to how much fiscal adjustment a country can make in contribution to re resolving its economic imbalances and um, and how much additional financing they need. Some people will argue that the IMF was over aggressive in the past in the level of fiscal adjustment. Um, so I do see that the, there's, there's a, been some moderation in the, the level of fiscal consolidation in IMF programming over the last 15 years or so. Have there been any particularly interesting developments in the IMF legal basis or policy orientation or governance orientation that in the last, let's say, two decades that you think are worth pointing out here? Um, so a couple of things. So on, on the governance side, um, I, I had indicated that the IMF has a, a voted, um, a weighted voting uh, framework in its board. Um, so that there has been some changes um, on, on, on the governance side and that there has been a slight shift to um, some countries such as China, um, that there was uh, changes in the articles that provided a slight shift in terms of weighting to the small um, countries whose economies are small in terms of economy size. Um, and so that, that has made some slight change in the balance of power, if you like, within the board. Um, and, and that broader shift, for example, in terms of um, China gaining more weight in the institution is also consistent with China becoming a larger um, global economic power, um, and so you know I think that that that's an interesting trend. I don't think that trend is by any way means um, towards its end. I, I, I think there's going to be continual pressure uh, for a readjustment of IMF um, quota and IMF voting power. Um, towards, as I say, emerging countries like China and, and towards um, smaller economies. Shifting gears a bit away from the IMF, there are also private lenders that 
by sovereign debt. These could be hedge funds in DC, hedge funds in London, hedge funds anywhere else, or any kind of private investors of that sort that are interested in the bond market in these jurisdictions. Sometimes, however, these bondholders would not get their money paid back on time, or they're not getting money paid back as much as they should, you know, various other legal problems. And sometimes they do need to take some sort of legal action or recourse against these governments. This can be done in various ways that I am sure we're going to get to in the conversation. So sometimes, like in Belize recently, um, they had to negotiate with the government to get their money back. But before we do get to Belize and some other examples, which I am very much looking forward to, could you first set the stage for our listeners about how these private lenders even get the bonds um, from these uh, from these sovereign nations? Okay, so I should give a, a bit of disclosure. So I, I, I represented the bondholder committee in, in, in Belize's last um, debt restructuring. So that, that, that's my disclosure. I think your question is asking me about the initial um, issuance um, of sovereign bonds. And so not all, be very basic, not all countries have international market access. Um, it, it really it, it depends upon um, your credit rating, depends upon the sense of your, you know, the, the strength of your economic policies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but some countries do. Um, so Belize, for, for example, has had international market access for some time, but has been a serial defaulter on those bonds for some time. And so there, there is a judgment made by the, um, the asset managers and the funds that, that um, typically invest in bonds, a judgment made to purchase bonds, um, and, and they will look at the, the interest rate that the country is offering uh, relative to their assessment of the risk um, associated with, with the credit risk associated with, with that country. And then there will be significant secondary market trading. That, that is the interesting thing about bonds. Bonds are tradable in instruments. And so the initial buyers of the bonds may not necessarily be the, the, the holders of the bonds at the time of a restructuring by any means. Um, and so that secondary market um, trading is an important feature. Um, so if a country then gets into debt distress, um, then, then there, there often will be a process um, for a restructuring. Sometimes those restructurings take place in parallel with an IMF program. And I'll just focus on that a little bit first before I, I, I jump to Belize as, as a contrary example. But if, if the restructuring is taking place in parallel with the IMF program, there is a legal reason for why that happens. And that is because the IMF is precluded by its, its articles from lending into unsustainable debt situations. Um, and so it, it can only um, do so if the program itself calls for a restructuring um, on terms that are consistent um, with the financing envelope that the IMF has established. And so that, that, that is why you, you see a lot of these sovereign debt restructurings taking place in the context of an IMF financing program. There's, there's a legal reason for why that, that, that happens. Uh, but then there's some country cases where there is no IMF program. So, you know, the bondholders, for example, in Belize's recent restructuring were quite keen for Belize to have an IMF financing program. They wanted the IMF um, monitoring. They wanted the, the credibility. Um, and, and they were they negotiated on that basis. But um, given that it's Belize's choice 
um, legally as to whether to have an IMA financing program or not, um, Belize did, decided in that case that, that they were not going to have an IMA program. And so the sovereign debt restructuring took place outside of an IMF financing context. Um, now, there's no international sovereign bankruptcy legal framework. Um, I, I, I know you're aware of that. So these are essentially negotiated solutions. Um, there are some legal aspects because the, the bonds themselves are are contracts and there are provisions in, in the contracts in terms of enforcement, in terms of um, payment, etc. So I'm, I'm not saying there is no legal input in the process, but there's no overarching um, bankruptcy framework. So the, there is uh, basically a, a negotiation um, around uh, what would be a reasonable compromise um, among a large uh, portion of of the uh, bondholder base um, vis-a-vis the government. In in the bond contracts that the creditors purchase, is there are there clauses in those contracts about how to proceed in terms of these specific ways of default with the bond, or do they have to figure out that process in negotiation? Okay, that, that's that's a good question. So m- many bonds. These days have so-called engagement clauses, um, which sets out the terms and basis upon which the sovereign issuer will engage with the bondholders. Um, typically, there, there's a call for engagement with a, a bondholder committee. Um, there are various thresholds that are, are set depending on, on, on the particular bond as to how much um, value um, that committee, the, the bondholders in that committee need to have. Um, so there, there's a variety of, of different um, formulations there, but there there are engagement clauses um, that can kick in um, in circumstances where there has been a default or, or you know, that could be a payment default, but other types of defaults also could could be um, tied to the, the establishment um, of these committees. So, so there, there is that. Um, but those provisions are not very detailed, but, but there, there are some established um, practices. For example, the Institute of International Finance um, has some principles that are on stable capital flows and fair debt restructuring um, that are generally considered to be the market standard in, in the process for debt restructuring. And then if you're in the context of an IMF program, the IMF itself has policies, including its lending into arrears policies, that establishes um, expectations on the appropriate process for in, engaging um, in, in circumstances where the, the debtor country is, is seeking a restructuring from private creditors. Um, so those are the levels in the contracts itself, um, in some established international market practices. And then, as I say, when the IMF is involved in financing, the IMF Policies also can inform the process. So if there's an IMF program involved and then the country also has a debt default and then it also is a creditor committee, what, what, um, which persons are, let's say, in the room doing negotiations? Oh, <laughs> so it's, it's very common for creditor committees to appoint advisors. Um, they'll, they'll appoint legal advisors such as my firm and most times, they will appoint financial advisors. There's actually a, a trend away from the latter in some circumstances. If the committee has bondholders that feel that they are you know, very experienced in the sovereign um, debt negotiation process, sometimes they, they, they will 
um, do that themselves. Um, but there's a an, an important limitation. So because bonds are tradable instruments, um, you, you have rules uh, with regard to material non-public information. So it can sometimes be very awkward for the holder of those bonds for, to themselves negotiate directly um, a restructuring because the the um, discussions in that negotiation will reveal to them material non-public information. So that is one reason why that they they would often initiate that process through their advisors, um, and then they will come into the negotiations at, at a limited stage at the end. But that's subject to you know, specific non-disclosure agreements that limit the time and, and, and under which those discussions will take place, and that will provide for a so-called cleansing of information. The information is made public. Um, after a certain stage. And so that will then free um, the, the bondholders from the, the restrictions associated with having received material non-public information. So there, there's some important legal details that affect the dynamic as to who is negotiating um, on, on whose behalf and when. Ah, interesting. So I, I spoke to someone recently and I asked him, you know, on his firm, they, they buy bonds. I asked him if they ever read the bond contracts. He, he was like, well, <laughs> they're, they're too long. I can't, they can't read the contracts. So, I, and he said, well, they have lawyers to read through the contracts. I, I was surprised how detailed these contracts were. But you mentioned that the default parts of the contract are not that spelled out. So why are the contracts so long? That, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, they're they're long for boilerplate reasons. I mean, in, in some in some respects, I mean, there's some standard clauses that have been in bond contracts for a long time, and people just cut and paste them um, and, and and put them in, in into their own. But um, you, you raise a really important insight. I mean, there's been a lot of debate in the international community about you know different contractual um clauses and the amendments that there, there are and trying to create new market standards for example on so-called collective action clauses these are clauses clauses that allow a super majority of the bondholders to agree to a restructuring um, and and the reality is as you stated most of the investors don't even read those clauses um, and so I think there's been a um, I'm not the only person to have mentioned this. There's been a lot of really interesting a- academic studies by people like me, me too, Gulati and Anna Gilpin on the, the disconnect between a lot of the reforms associated with um, establishing a different contractual basis and what actually happens in the market. And, and what actually happens in the market is that these clauses are often not read. Um, but with one qualifier, they're, they're not read at issuance. I mean, the, the, the portfolio manager who is buying these bonds is, is not going to read them. But they are read when you get to a distress debt situation. Then everyone starts to focus. Um, for, for some situations, that's often too late. But at that time, there's, there's a great deal of focus on what the bond contract says. Um, the one qu- additional qualifier that I, I want people to, to understand is that the, they're read in terms of the negotiation process. It's very rare in sovereign debt restructuring for there to be litigation. Now, there's been some litigation over the years that have been sort of, um, you know, sort of landmark cases. I mean, cases against Argentina, Peru, um, for example, if you're focusing on Latin America. But they are the real exception. Um, sovereign debt litigation, particularly on bonds, is extraordinarily rare um, in, in, in practice. And I've never seen it in circumstances where the bondholders 
uh, consider that the um, debtor is acting in, in good faith. So it's the, I only see the litigation in extreme cases, and those extreme cases are animated by a, a, a sense by the, the bondholders that the debtor is being uncooperative. Um, and, and so, you know, there, there are those marginal cases of litigation, but they are by no means the norm. So I do want to go to Argentina now then. So mm-hmm. Argentina is infamous in the news for this um, debt restructuring programs or a series of programs and the refusal to work with the funds in America and and so on. So I, and I think you were also involved in the Argentina, at least part of it, yes. uh, Argentina yes. Credit Committee. Okay, could you set the stage for why was the Argentina Credit Committee negotiations so contentious and then what happened in, in the, mm-hmm. they eventually worked out? Uh, um, so I have to be careful here <laughs> because uh, you know, they're, they're different parties. So I represented one of the creditor committees. Um, and in Argentina's situation, there were three creditor committees. So that f- fact alone created a complication. And we, we, we could discuss perhaps. Um, so, you know, the, the committees were organically generated um, based upon the interests of the parties, sometimes upon their familiarity with particular uh, ad- advisors, but you know there, there there were different interest groups represented you know, broadly within those three committees, and so you know that 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 was a complicating factor, which I, I think you know did create some of the contention. But that is not the main point. The the the, the main point in my theory of solving debt restructuring. I think my, my, my main um, starting point is that the behavior of the debtor is a critical component um, in the dynamic of the restructuring. So, you know, a, a lot of the analysis over the last 20 years or so has focused on so-called um, coordination issues among the creditors. And, and, and that, that's important. And I've started this narrative there. But the, the main driver, uh, in my experience, of the negotiating process um, and the contention um, or, or not is the behavior of the debtor. Um, and, you know, I, I think I wouldn't surprise anyone if I said, you know, Argentina hasn't ha- doesn't have a good track record in engaging constructively in the debt restructuring process. It, it takes a rather scorched earth view. Um, and I, I think that informed the contention. There's one other party who I would mention, and, and this is my you know, former employer at the IMF. I, 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 I've said this to my former colleagues, and so this is no secret here. I, I think the the IMF was not as constructive as it normally is or, or could have been in the Argentina case. I, I think the debt sustainability analysis that it produced in order to support uh, a, a supposed uh, restructuring, I, I, I think, was skewed in favor um, of Argentina. And because the that analysis wasn't credible, there was a lot of contention and bitterness associated with um, creditors feeling that they were they were being bumped into a restructuring um, without appropriate um, justification. So those are the three factors: they're, they're the creditor coordination issues, the key factor around the debtor behavior, and as I say, I think the the IMS analysis in Argentina um, uh, fell short of its normal standards. So you mentioned that in an interview you had. Uh, with a legal magazine, you mentioned that 
within the period, only coming close to the end, did Argentina properly engage in negotiations. So, this last in, in the last round, like, why then comes the end only, where there's then more, I guess, recipient of, of negotiations? Um, okay, so I, I think I'm sort of making a a nuanced distinction. So when I say negotiation in a sovereign debt restructuring context, I, I mean a process where um, both parties are putting their cards on the table. They're sharing information, and most of the information is coming from the debtor side. That the debtor has the information about its its economic prospects, what what its other sources of financing are. Um, what what are, are the adjustment policies is going to in, engage in? So there's um, a transparent information exchange. Um, you get to a sense of you know what are the economic parameters that can form the basis of a restructuring, and then there's a negotiation over the terms because there are many ways of skinning the cat in those situations. There, 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 there are multiple ways in which you, you can get to restructuring terms that are consistent with the financing on, on envelope in, in, in a given case. So you know, that, that is a negotiation. Um, in, in, a, in many situations, the debtor countries engage what I call in discussions. Um, you know, they, they, there's a lot of shadow play. They will produce press releases. They will provide you some partial information here and there. And, and, and that's that sort of strategy. Um, it, it's, it's not necessarily an informed negotiation where, as I say, people are putting their cards on, on the table. Um, so I don't believe Argentina negotiated through that process. No, but not by any means. There, there was a lot of shadow play, um, a lot of optics, and, um, and and then there was only a, a very short period of, of the negotiation at the end. But I, but as I say, by that time, the the framework had already been baked in a way that um, wasn't credible, and 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 because of that, less some bitterness. Do you have a view on these activist hedge funds, so-called activist hedge funds? They're called other things as well. Uh, they, they buy the sovereign debt and they really try to hold the government accountable for its particular fiscal policies and really tries to push out a repayment of the debt. Um, uh, do, do you have a view on that? Sure, I have a view on that. Mm. So let, let me sort of step back a little bit. I, I, I should have explained a little bit about, about my practice so I, I, I represent sovereign debtors in some instances. I represent creditors, and the creditors I represent uh, go across the whole spectrum. So I, I, I represent some uh, real money in investors, so insurance companies and big asset managers. I represent some um, hedge funds, and I represent some of the um, the, the funds that I, I think you're alluding to here, the, some of the more activist funds um, who – are not buying bonds and when they are issued, but they're purchasing in the secondary market in distress situations. Um, that activity of bondholders coming in in the secondary market and purchasing in distress situations is really important for market functioning. They provide critical liquidity to the bond markets. And so I, I, I don't criticize um, a, any fund for having that um, business um Business model, as it were. So, so that that that's that's the first point. And then the second point I sort of alluded to earlier is it is not as if all of those funds are engaged in that activity in order to litigate. That there are some that may be willing to litigate, and then they only do so, in my experience, if they don't find a reasonable counterpart. 
Um, there are also some limitations in the bond instruments occasionally as to wh- whether they can litigate on the individual basis. They, they may need to have um, a collective group. Um, but, you know, they, they do carry out an important market function, in, in, in my view. Um, and, you know, the, 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 you, you have to find a way to engage with them. When, when I'm representing the sovereign debtor, I, I understand I, I've got to find a, a, a way of engaging with that part of the market. The irony is, in a sovereign debt restructuring, often the, the part of the market that we're discussing now are the most willing mm. to enter into a restructuring. Because, remember, they're buying on a highly distressed basis. And so if you compare their interest with a real money investor who has bought a par and a, a distressed debt purchaser who, let's say, has bought at 30 cents, the distressed debt purchaser is often more willing to go into restructuring at 40 mm. and, and, and to take a 10, you know, a, a 10 um, profit um, relative to the real money investor. So it is not as if that the presence of these um, funds in the market necessarily hold up restructurings and sometimes they actually ironically facilitate the restructuring aha very interesting uh there is a lot of discussion now about chinese lending and chinese lenders in particular and i, I was i had a previous podcast with a beijing-based lawyer who works on you know various international chinese lending contracts and he made a very you know interesting point about how chinese uh, loans even from the CDB or China XM, tend to have a more, as a commercial skew or orientation in the way the contracts are designed. And this has come to, seems to be a clash between uh, the Paris club lenders, for example, when they tend to complain that China, via the CDB and the different XM banks, do not want to participate in sovereign debt restructurings in the same way that Paris club lenders do. And these Paris club lenders, in turn, they don't have, let's say, a as commercially focused contract design as Chinese lenders do. I'm curious if you think that is a actual distinction between how Chinese lenders, which are effectively bilateral lenders, but they would claim of the commercial lending nature, if that actually is a distinction between them and the Paris Club. Yeah, so let, let me sort of un- unpack that a little bit for your, your viewers. So you, you mentioned the Paris Club. So the, the, the Paris Club is a, a, a group of um, traditional OECD um, countries. So the UK, the US, Japan, France, the, these are the OECD member countries who have been working together since the, oh, I want to say the 1950s, um, in a informal grouping, and they have established rules of the game for sovereign debt restructuring by official bilateral creditors is the term we use. These are other governments. Um, and, and the Paris Club does not include um, China, Russia, and India, um, and many of the um, Middle Eastern countries. And the reason why I emphasize that is that China, India, Russia, and the Middle Eastern countries are now in the ascendancy or have been in the ascendancy in the last decade or so in terms of um, financing from other governments. So they hold most of the credit, but they're not within this old school system of restructuring that we call the Paris Club. And so that's that's a, a sort of an institutional problem. So I don't have any prior 
um, sort of bias. I, I've got, I, I don't I don't believe every country needs to join the Paris Club. I think we, we need to have some historical understanding here, um, and also to recognise that for those new creditors, they of course legitimately have some questions around. Well, why should they join this club? where the rules of the game has already been set by this club and there's no way for them to influence the rules of the game going forward. Um, so, you know, China in, in, in some um, sectors of, of the sovereign debt market holds 50% of the debt. Mm. So why should a creditor that holds 50% of the debt um, associate itself with a club where there's a, a very small percentage of the debt and that club will determine for China how to conduct itself? That's a problem. Um, that problem was moderated recently in one or a couple of respects. So the one I'm going to focus on now is the so-called common framework for debt restructuring. So for low-income countries that have access to the IMF and World Bank's concessional financing, the G20 um, created a framework which is built roughly around the Paris Club processes, but also um, allows um, non-Paris Club creditor countries like China and Russia and others to work in a similar manner in cases where those countries need a debt restructuring. Um, that, that process is sort of working of sorts, in, in, um, but there's been no um, restructurings concluded yet thereunder. Um, and you raise an interesting point that I'm talking about so-called official bilateral claims. These are other government claims. And so whenever you have that test, there is sort of the converse test. Well, what counts as official bilateral and what counts as commercial? And you're quite correct. And China has been raising in a number of fora the question as to whether or not the commercial nature of a claim should be determined by its terms or just be determined by the nature um, of the creditor. So the traditional old school <laughs> Paris Club approach is you, you look at the nature of the creditor and China is questioning that. They're saying, well, why should that be the test? Why can't the test be the, the, the nature of the terms? So it, it, these are really fundamental questions. Um, and there, as I, it comes back to my earlier point that there's a shift in the global economic power. And, and there are countries that are now large players in terms of financing, and they're finding themselves sort of um, hooked into uh, a framework that were, was established by other countries who had, had um, large legacy um, financial interests. And there's some resistance and there's, some, there's a geopolitical fight taking place on what would be the appropriate framework going forward. So there's a lot of talk about ESG bonds these days, at least, uh-huh. at least in my, my circles, I suppose. Um, so before we get to that, I, I do want to ask to clear something up, because I want to ask about Suriname. Is there a distinction mm-hmm. between debt reprofiling and debt defaults or debt restructuring? Oh, the, the, these terms <laughs> can, can all be used in, 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 in very idiosyncratic ways. So a debt default for a lawyer, um, the typical debt default is a payment default, but that, that need not be the only default. The bond terms, the contract terms will set out what counts as a default. Um, and, and then a default allows for particular types of remedies, accelerations and, and litigation in, in, in principle. So that that's a debt default from a 
legal contractual perspective. However, the credit rating agencies have their own usage of that term. Um, you know, so if, if, if you were to announce a, um, you know, oh, a moratorium, typically would also be a payment default under the contract. But there, there, there are other circumstances where the, the actions of, of the debtor will count as a default for credit rating purposes. So that's another um, use of, of the term, the default. Um, I suppose reprofiling and restructuring, sometimes the distinction um, goes to the way the terms of the restructuring. So if, if I'm just moving out some of my interest payments, that may is often is called a reprofiling. Um, if I'm giving um, haircuts on principle, then that, that's a restructuring. And then there's a, a lot in between. And so the two concepts meld um, somewhere in the middle. I see. Okay. Because I, I recently hear reprofiling a lot more often, at least in the news, than I don't hear about defaults or restructuring as much. So that's why I asked that question. Yeah. Um, so there, there's, there's been a... a a sort of a learning over the last 20 years. I, when, when I joined the IMF um, in 2000, you know, all the IMS analysis was on post-default restructurings. Um, so everyone had an experience of restructurings taking place in circumstances where the country couldn't afford to pay its debts as they came due. Um, and so it will go into default and the restructuring will take place thereafter. Um, you know, so since then, we've, we've seen cases of so-called pre-default restructurings where there's actually no, no, no default by the time the restructuring is concluded. And so that, that was a novelty. And so we're all sort of having to sort of um, work our heads around that. But that's become part of, of, of the sovereign debt restructuring um, landscape. Um, so you know, the the um, terminology has become richer uh, over the last twenty years. Hmm. Uh, I see. So so Suriname, Suriname's an interesting one. Uh, there's some discussion about Suriname and ESG, but but before that, uh, last year the credit committee in Suriname, I believe they were not at least at some at some point, they were not very pleased with the way that the Suriname government was offering, I think, a repayment schedule or a change in uh, some kind of re- reprofiling. And they were, I think they put to try to push the government even further to try to do um, a better restructuring because they said it was not in good faith. I think that was the, that was the, the term. Uh, what could you tell us about the way how the uh, Suriname debt restructuring uh, 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 played out? Yeah, so I, I, I have to be careful here because we're still in, in, in that process. Um, the, the Suriname debt restructuring is not concluded. Um, you know, in, what, what I'll say is, is this. In all sovereign debt restructuring, there are highs and lows in the process. Uh, yeah, and so I, I, I don't want to focus so much on the lows of last year. Um, I know where we are now in our discussions. Um, I know where Suriname is. Suriname now has an IMF financing program. It took them 15 months of negotiation. Um, to, uh, unusually long. Yes, unusually long. Um, and um, the, the length of that process um, has something to do with some of my earlier points about the, the, um, the competition between the, the official bilateral creditors. Um, so a lot, a lot of conflict between China and the Paris Club and what, what the expectation should be, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, so that that is that is a a big factor in the delays in sovereign debt restructuring at, at, at present. People sort of wrongly focus on the private creditors, saying, "Oh, they're not cooperating." But I but believe you me. The, the biggest single factor that, that is causing the delays is, is the geopolitical fight between the official bilateral creditors. So, you know, we've had lots of highs and lows in Suriname. Um, but I think, you know, we, we now have a path for more constructive discussions. Um, you know, the, the, um, the really important um, factor in Suriname is that, you know, we, we recognize that they have liquidity constraints um, in, in the short and medium term. But they have tremendous prospects going forward because of the oil and gas fines. Um, so you know, this is a country that needs some liquidity relief, um, but has more than ample payment capacity um, going forward. Um, you know, when the oil and gas um, um, projects come into production, um, so you know that 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 in and of itself can tell you you know what what, what the shape of a potential restructuring um, should look like. Um, so, you know, that, 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 that's where I'll leave it in, in, in Suriname's case. So I do believe there is a path forward. And as I say, I've tried to sort of paint for you some of the shape of, of what, what a restructuring could look like. And and what about this new uh, ESG? Like, it's, it seems like a craze these days. Uh, why does ESG seem to be so um, I say, discussed now in the bond market situations? Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm involved in, in a, a couple of ESG cases. So let me just go back a little bit. Belize, you mentioned, mm-hmm. had a, a fairly large ESG component. Um, it was an unusual restructuring in, in the solving context because there was a buyback um, of, of the bonds um, at a discount relative to par, but at a premium relative to their market price. Mm-hmm. And, and the buyback was financed by a loan, and that, that the loan had some associated conditions around um, some marine conservation commitments by Belize. Um, so it, it was a very innovative um, ESG um, structure. Um, but, but there was no new bonds in the formal legal sense that were, were it, it issued. There were some, some, some notes that... that no, let me, no, let me not try and explain that that that, <laughs> that, that detail. So it was no you know, primary issuance of of, um, of um, ESG bonds, but but you're correct that there is a a big interest in ESG bonds and ESG financing generally across the capital markets, not just in the, in the sovereign space, um, but because it's a general interest, it is impacting the uh, an, an analysis um, on on on. Um, in, in, in the sovereign sphere as well. Um, well. One of the points I would make is that I, I'm not sure how successful one can be in terms of focusing just on the E component, on the environmental component, uh, unless you also have appropriate commitments and reforms on the G. Um, and G includes transparency um, and you know, important institutional reforms that can can, that can really make the environmental commitments meaningful. Um, and so, you know, I, I am struck by a lot of the market and just focus on, on so-called environmental commitments and we, without necessarily focusing enough on whether there's an institutional basis to make those environmental commitments meaningful um, and appropriately monitored. Um, so that, 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 that's my I- I insight on ESG.
I see. And just just to, for clarity, anyone listening, ESG is Environmental, Social, and Governance Bonds. <laughs> just, 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 that, that, that's <laughs> right. That, that's right. Yeah. yeah thank you. So um, final, my final question is, what do you think people most undervalue or misunderstand when you were discussing this big topic of sovereign debt restructuring? Most undervalue. Um, so sovereign debt restructurings require a multiple um, range of skills. Um, it, it requires legal skills. It requires institutional knowledge. You need to understand the players um, and, and not, not just the private creditor players, but you need to understand the official sector players um, as well. Um, you need to understand both sides of the table. The reason why I represent debtors as well as creditors in different cases, because I, I, I want to make sure I'm always well apprised as to the interests on either side of the table, and because these are negotiated deals and you don't get to a solution unless you're able to find some common ground. Um, so the, it has these, these complexities in terms of the, the broad range of players, but also um, you know, a, a need to find a negotiated solution because you don't have um, as many legal tools to force a solution. Um, and, and so, you know, that that's the key trick in, in, in solving debt restructuring. And that's, I think, is what people value the most in terms of the advisors that they can um, use. They, they want advisors who can understand as much of that broad range um, of, of issues as possible.